Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And what an honor it is to have a United States military veteran on this podcast. Um, His grandfather, Herschel Woody Williams, who you will see on an upcoming episode of the Intentional Encourager podcast, is the oldest living Congressional Medal of Honor recipient awarded in 1946 for bravery on the battlefield in World War II. Brent, as you can see if you're watching on YouTube, is wearing his Desert Storm shirt. Brent is a veteran of Desert Storm. And that 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 conflict is now 30. My I'm doing some on-podcast math, 30 years old this year. We we went over to the desert as a country in 1991. But it is my honor to welcome in today Brent Casey joining me on the Intentional Courage Podcast. Brent, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Doing great. Doing great. It's a great day. It it really is. I want to. I start here with everybody. You're in the Louisville, Kentucky area. I want to start here around what you what you've seen the last year around COVID nineteen. Obviously, you're still connected to the area that we're in. You're you're three hours away. You get back here very frequently. But what did you see in in Louisville? Maybe what was a lesson that you learned around the last 14 months of the pandemic that we've gone through as a country? Wow. Well, that's a tough one. It's, uh, yeah, it's obviously been a tough, tough year for, for everyone. Um, my, as you mentioned, my family is in, in Huntington. So they're about three hours away. So, uh, one of the big things we learned is, uh, how to order groceries delivered uh, to someone else's house in another state. So uh, <laughs> mom and dad couldn't get out to, to uh, get groceries. And we found this one wonderful service, <clears throat> Instacart. And so I would get on there, you know, every week and um, order, order their groceries delivered in for them. Um, and actually we still do it and we started doing it here at my house. So it's been, uh, We've learned how to be a little more efficient, I guess, and um, <clears throat> learned how to be a little more uh, patient, I think, is um, patience is, is something that was was certainly tested uh, over this past year uh, for us as well. You live in, in the Louisville, Kentucky area, and you guys saw from a news perspective, you guys saw a lot of things. I, I know a lot of people in the Louisville area that that's a favorite area of mine, but they went through some things around different incidences and things like that. And and I'm not Brent, you know, you and I know each other well enough. I'm not asking that question to politicize anything. I just want to get some perspective of what it was like living in the Louisville, Kentucky area, because the Louisville area, it is is um and and I'll set this up for folks that don't that don't know the Louisville area. The Louisville area, the first Saturday in May, is an area that gets bombarded with people from all over the world. 
And the reason that they come there is they come to the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs. Now, I will say this. Churchill Downs is in the hood. I don't know why people would dress up like that. And, and, and I mean no disrespect. It, it is not in a, in, a, in a good area of Louisville. If you've ever been, if you've, if you've ever, if you've not been to Louisville and you want to go see Churchill Downs, it's not in a great area. It's not in downtown Louisville. It's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's in, a, it's in, a, it's in the hood. I mean, and, yep. and, and not trying to disparage anything. It's just not in a, It's in an older part of Louisville and things like that. So you guys are used to having, you know, one, you know, for, for the, for the two weeks leading up to the Derby and then the, then the Derby itself, you guys are used to people, the world descending on you. But last year, you guys had the world descend on you for a different reason. What was that like as a Louisvillian watching all that unfold in your city? That was terrible. It was, it was horrible. I've never, uh, I've been here 30 years and uh, I've never been uh, fearful or, or scared to, to live in, in my own town. Um, Yeah. What happened here uh, and it happened during the Derby too. The you know those the folks that came in and intimidated, um, or just, you know intimidators came in and mm-hmm. and really disrupted uh, what was even going to take place uh, at the Derby. So um, yeah, we had you know having that uh, those issues on top of um, on top of the COVID issues just was a, a double whammy. Like I said, I've never been, I've never been scared to um, walk out of my own house until this past year or watching my back when I'm, when I'm getting gas at the gas station and the carjackings here. And uh, I mean, it's just stuff we never had to worry about before the, um, the killings, the shootings, just, just up to today, this year in Louisville, uh, just the shootings are, I think, in in around 200. Um, and I don't know what the deaths are. They're not that. They're not as high as 200. But it's just um, it's just brought on a whole different atmosphere um, because of because of what happened here. Well, it's a shame. It, it really is because Louisville is such a great area. Because when you when if you're coming in from where I live on I-64. You know when you get to about mile marker 20 on 64, you start to come into the Louisville proper. And I, and, and, and I used to work for a company. I worked for a couple of companies in Louisville. And I remember, you know, a couple of, a couple of times, the first time, first few times that I would, do, would come from West Virginia back in the 90s, the mid-90s, over to Louisville, I knew I was there because I would hit the the blank and baker road exit on i-64 and 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 the 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 dynamic of louisville is is the whole county jefferson county is louisville metro that's what the 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 area is known as louisville metro so when you go into louisville metro when you when you you could be and you are about 10 to 12 miles from downtown louisville but once you hit Louisville Metro, you are in Louisville, and it's and it's big and wide. And and I, I, Brent, I just never saw anything like it. With the first few times that I that I traveled into Louisville, I was like, this is a little different. You know, I'm I'm 15 miles outside of downtown Louisville, That's and right. they tell me I'm in Louisville already. 
And then I drive right. another five or 10 miles. I'm still in Louisville Metro. So, I mean, it's, it was pretty wild, but I, I got to ask you this and and you, you live in such a unique part of the country. What do you love about living in the Louisville, Kentucky area? I love the people. I mean, um, the people here are, are just as friendly as they are or, or more so than, than anywhere else I've been in the country. Uh, I also like the fact that we've got some pretty good sports around here and uh, some pretty good sports rivalries. Um, we have a, ga a great college uh, program, football and basketball. Um, the uh, the soccer is becoming big here. I'm not a big soccer fan myself, but uh, Louisville City soccer is becoming a, a big thing. Um, the river running through downtown, sort of like Huntington, you know, having a having a, a big river running through your city is uh, always adds some charm um, and uh, some park uh, park areas down there and restaurant different restaurants. And the, speaking of restaurants, the food here is probably one of my, my one of my top three things. Um, and we oh, have more I, restaurants here than we do people. I'm telling you what, <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm telling you what. Yeah. It, it is you you would not believe the restaurant scene in louisville kentucky you you go down there there is one there's one particular road and, and i worked at a college that was on the front end of this road a college that brent and i are very familiar with sullivan university you start on bardstown road and you can go down this road and and, and it morphs into an area called the highlands and there are literally restaurants right next to each other, just little small restaurants that are just incredibly good places to eat. And it's, it's got a nice, you can walk from place to place. It, it's very eclectic. I'd never seen anything like it when I went down there in, in the late, you know, the late 2000, you know, late 2000s, you know, into 2010, 2011. You're right there. There at one time, Brent, there was about 2,500 restaurants in the Louisville metro area. I believe it. And those of you, listen, you cannot go to Louisville, Kentucky and not have a hot brown. You've got to have Absolutely. a hot brown. And, and they're, they're, they're tremendously good. And, of course, you mentioned the University of Louisville basketball program. You guys have a beautiful downtown arena called the Yum Center. It's it is sure. tremendous, and then that that's obviously the headquarters of Kentucky Fried Chicken. We'll get into your story a little bit later, but I want to ask you this: from a from an economic standpoint, or what you're seeing in in, in the Louisville area, what does that area need economically to kind of lift itself a little bit? Because you guys have had. And again, I, I don't mean to be political, but I'm just, the, it, facts are facts. The state of Kentucky has been locked down for the most part yeah. by Governor Andy Bashir, who has who has mandated a lot of these lockdowns and, it, and it's affected people economically. What, what needs to, what do you think can be done from an economic standpoint to kind of lift the city of Louisville? Because it's always been a vibrant, as you pointed out, a vibrant economic city. Well, the the, uh, the mayor's thinking, unfortunately, runs hand in hand with the governor's. And um, as far as I'm concerned, that's that's been a big problem. Um, the lockdowns. The other thing, too, that in, the, in this past year was, I mean, the city 
the Yum Center was about the only thing that wasn't boarded up because you couldn't physically board it up. But once uh, the riots and, and on all those things started happening last May um, and buildings looted, I mean, there was a Kroger store down there that was completely emptied. I mean, they completely, mm -hmm. there wasn't a thing left in it. And uh, of course, the mayor and the governor said, uh, well, you know, a few people went in and took a few things. And, uh, and it's just, you know, it, <clears throat> it's just uh, not the right uh, attitude for uh, things like that happening. But essentially, the whole downtown was boarded up. The whole downtown mm -hmm. was completely hijacked uh, for months. Um, it's just now getting back to uh, pulling the boards off of those buildings um, many of them aren't coming back. Mm -hmm. um, so it caused some, some real problems. Um, you know, I just think new leadership is, uh, is my suggestion. Um, well, and you growing we'll up see. in, well, and I mean to interrupt you, Brent, you growing up in this area, in, in the area that we live in, you saw what, what economic downturn looked like growing up here in this area. And, and, you know, as, as a kid and, and as a young adult, our area in, in, in what we call the tri-state area, meaning Huntington, West Virginia, Ashland, Kentucky, Ironton, and Southern Ohio, we have always been at an economic disadvantage for one reason or another, whether it's population leaving or whether it's the lack of, of industry and, and manufacturing coming here. And Louisville has always been the exact opposite. They've always had manufacturing. They've always had good paying jobs, economic opportunities. Again, we mentioned the University of Louisville. If you go around the University of Louisville the last 15 years, it's exploded with Papa John Stadium being built there. It, it seemed like everything shifted from the fairgrounds over to where the University of Louisville is over in that area with the growth and things like that. And we just, in our area, Brent, as you know, well, you know, we, we just don't see those same economic opportunities and the pandemic has, has, has done that as well. What's been the biggest lesson that you've learned around the pandemic and, and how you've had to, to handle things? I know you mentioned getting groceries to your parents and, and things like that. But what's been the biggest lesson that you've learned coming out of this pandemic? To be prepared. Um, I feel like I was never prepared before this happened. Uh, I never kept an extra case of uh, toilet paper on hand. I never kept uh, 10, 15 gallons of gas on hand. Uh, I never had a generator until uh, six or eight months ago. I never had a three-month food supply mm. until about six months ago. Uh, those are just a few things that, that I've put in place uh, myself or for myself and my family. Um, so I think it's just the biggest lesson for me just is, is be prepared. And I, and I really, really never was before. But um, the political environment, um, the, the social environment, of our country and the, and the, the turn, um, the turn there, um, and the pandemic all just kind of led me to think, Hey, I'm not, I'm not really prepared. So I am much more prepared now. Well, and I want to tease this a little bit because 
the the conversation I had with your grandfathers, we're recording this. I, I had the the distinct honor of being with Brent's grandfather yesterday for our first in-person interview on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And he wrapped up the conversation. And 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 here's what I saw. Whether you whether you agree with being vaccinated, whether you don't agree with being vaccinated, your grandfather looked into to, into the same camera I'm looking into. And he talked about the importance of, of vaccination. And, and for me, that, that really resonated because this we're talking about, and, and we'll talk more about the influence of your grandfather a little bit later in the conversation. But what really struck me, Brent, was, was he had talked about preparation in battle. A, a, a time before that and talking about his, 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 his time in world war two and the preparation and things like that. And then when he, when, when I said, you know, would he give me your biggest piece of intentional encouragement? It, it, it took me a little bit, but he went straight to the preparation of, Hey folks, this is a battle that we're in right now with this, with this coronavirus. And just as we had to be prepared before we've got to be prepared now. And, and again, it struck me because I knew Brent that he put a lot of thought into it. He put a lot of, it wasn't just something like, I'm going to speak to this because, you know, it's the right thing to say. Like, like some people do, it's the right thing to say in the moment. It's the right thing to, but, but I didn't see that. What I saw was conviction of, I've been in this battle before. Not with the same enemy, but I've been in this battle before, and we need to be prepared. I love what you said there, and it just triggered that that thought in my mind about the conversation I had with your grandfather. And so let's step aside and take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about Brent's work with veterans and his company, Valor Coins and Pins. This organization is doing some incredible work. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the genesis of that and, and, and what the work that they're doing. I'm talking with veteran Brent Casey on the Intentional Encourager podcast today. Come back and be with us here in just a moment on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you, as a business owner, can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Brent, I want to talk about Valor Coins and Pins. When, 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 you, when, when we were putting this this conversation together you said hey brian shoot me an email to this i had to look up the website 
And it, it's amazing. And I just want to read for the audience that, that, that are listening to this. I want to read what it, because this resonates with me. You get to the website, you get to the, to the, to the homepage, Valor, uh, Valor. Let me, let me do this real quick. I'm doing this on the fly. Valorpinsandcoins.com is the website. And, and when you get there, you see this as a service disabled veteran owned and operated small business. We feel honored and privileged to have the opportunity to earn your business. I love that because again, every entrepreneur, every small business in this country has been challenged through this pandemic in one way or another, the small and, and, and Brent, I don't think, and I'm not trying to go on a diatribe here, but I don't think we give small business enough credit as truly being the backbone of the American economy. Absolutely. And so I want to ask you, how did, how did Valor come about and, and what was the impetus for you to, to, to start your company and, and, and do the things that you guys are doing to honor United States veterans? Sure. Well, I've always been a huge fan of the challenge coin. Uh, the challenge coin history goes back um, decades and there are different stories um, depending on which story you read about uh, how challenge coins started. But I've always been a huge fan. I've always been a collector of challenge coins. Um, I've always been fascinated that um, that individuals from, from the president to the governor to a four-star general um, to a, a buck sergeant in the army um, has has a challenge coin and, and seeing them presented. And, and let me jump in here. Can you define for the audience? Cause I'm not sure I know what a challenge coin is. Can you define or will you define what a, a challenge coin is? Yeah. A challenge coin is it's, it's a um, not always a round coin. I've got a, a display here above me and they're, they're not all round. Some, some of them are shaped. Um, I, I just did a, uh, a, a coin in the shape of a Huey helicopter for a Vietnam uh, war veteran who was a helicopter wow. pilot in Vietnam. So the coin is actually in the shape of a, of a uh, UH-1 Huey helicopter. But it's, it's a coin that identifies a person or an effort or a cause uh, or an organization. We just did, um, you know, we've done coins for Northrop Grumman, uh, Lockheed Martin, PNC Bank, um, and some, some big companies, and they use those for different reasons. Um, UPS, I do, do most all of UPS's coins here in, here in Louisville, um, and they use them for different things, for uh, achievement. Um, they're presented for, um, as an award for a year of safe driving, or mm -hmm. uh, a pilot makes chief. He gets a, a pilot chief uh, challenge coin. But it's it's a it's it's sort of a business card. Maybe that's the best way to explain it. Is um, it's an individual business card. It's about the cost of a cup of coffee, um, but it's it's something significant. It's it's brass or zinc. It's a heavy metal coin. Um, and when you put that when you when you put that in someone's hand, it is significant. It's more significant than a business card. A lot of business cards went in file 13. Yeah. But but most people, I've never known anyone that would throw away a challenge coin. And to me, that's what 
that's why they're a little more special, a little more expensive than a business card. But for the price of a cup of coffee, if you're trying to make an impression on someone um, and you present them one of your challenge coins, you can have your phone number on it, your website, yeah, um, your rank in the military on one side, and then maybe the cause that you support on the other side. We do a lot of coins like that for uh, for military nonprofits, uh, VFWs, American Legions. Um, I mean, you name it. There's uh, from the president, the mayor, the, you know, a lot of political. I've done state representatives. Uh, just made all of the lapel pins for all of the uh, House representatives in the state of Ohio. I just made all their challenge coins for uh, the Ohio State House. Um, wow. So it's yeah, it's it, and it's fun. I you know I get a chance to um, use my uh, artistic side of the brain and and help them design um, something and um, yeah, something special. Have you, have you had a challenge coin that when you were were striking the coin, you got emotional striking that coin? Is there one that comes to mind that really just that'll be that'll be one you never forget designing them certainly yeah there's there's some emotion that goes into uh all of them but some of them have a whole lot of emotion i've done a lot of coins for gold star families um I was on the phone yesterday a fellow in kansas and i minted and, and made his challenge coins for his son and we put his picture of his son on the challenge coins. And I've done a number of those um, for, for Gold Star families, Gold Star mothers who lost their son, Gold Star wives who lost their husbands. Um, those are, those are the, the emotional ones for sure, no doubt. Did, did you ever think that that would become your life's work? You know, because a lot of people will fall into to a business. They'll, they'll say, well, I, you know, like I used to work with guys in sales that started out to be school teachers and they're like, well, I just, you know, I needed a job. I went to work in sales and, you know, lo and behold, that's where I, that's where I ended up. Did you ever think that, that, that striking coins Brent would become your life's work? No, 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 never dreamed. And I did kind of fall into it, to be honest with you. Uh, my brother and I about, uh, 2013, decided to start a nonprofit um, and became co-founders of the Woody Williams, what is now the Woody Williams Foundation. And so we started that foundation. Uh, Woody had a personal challenge coin. So we decided we wanted to do foundation challenge coins. Um, so we were going through a third party to make those challenge coins for Woody and for the foundation. And then the lapel pin um, which is in the shape of the Gold Star Family's Memorial Monument that he designed. He probably had one on his coat yesterday, uh, knowing yeah. what he, he, he likes lapel pins. But um, those lapel pins, we were, we were making by the thousands. I mean, we were handing those out literally by the thousands. And, um, and we've been doing that for years now. So we were paying a third party again for the lapel pins and the challenge coins. And I just thought of as as a way to save the foundation money, if we could, if we could eliminate the third party, the middleman, 
uh, and go to the factory ourselves and become a vendor. So that's exactly what we did. My brother and I uh, partnered in this business. Uh, my brother, Brian, he lives in Ohio. So we established the business license in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he and I started Valor Coins and Pens, and and now we are a factory direct um, company, and we've eliminated you know the, the middleman, um, so we're able to get factory direct pricing not just for Woody and our foundation, but for all of our customers. So, well, and, and Brent, I, I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the Gold Star families. That was something that was very important in the cool. conversation that I had with your grandfather because. Um, he was talking about how, when he was in war, the war department basically would show up at, at a family's front door, inform the family of the, of the loss of loved one, um, doing it with their hat off and then putting their hat back on, turning and walking away and basically leaving that family to pick up the pieces. And, and now our, our government has, has gone, taken leaps and bounds in improving that, that process, but still there's nothing that honors the family of the, of the, of the service man or woman that lost their life. When you think about the gold star projects that you've worked on and you mentioned your grandfather designing that in fact, alluding to that conversation, West Virginia was the first state to have a gold star monument. And now we have seven in this state that honor the families of fallen servicemen and women. And and I I could not be more proud of my state for doing that. But as you've worked with these families, you mentioned designing a coin for, for a gentleman in Kansas that has his son's picture on it. What is that like to design something as a, as a legacy piece for a fallen serviceman or woman in combat? As in the Gold Star Family's yes. Memorial Monument. Well, that's um, that's that's a much much bigger, uh, much much bigger cause, and and really Woody gets Woody gets the credit for for that. Um, when my brother and I went uh, to put to submit the five hundred one c three nonprofit um, for the Herschel Woody Williams Medal of Honor Education Foundation. At that point, on that in that day, we didn't know what we were going to do with the foundation. We just knew Woody had some funds. Um, they weren't being put to use. He wanted to do something. So we started this nonprofit. Well, within a couple months, he designed this Gold Star Families Memorial Monument, which was the first. So, so I started doing the research. And, like, and I said, you know, Woody, this has never been done before. This there is no such thing until now, and so he designed. That's his design, uh, except for the cutout. the uh, The architecture gave him the idea to cut out the uh, silhouette because that mm-hmm. person is not coming home. So, really, Woody gets. I mean, it, it did. That kind of fell in our hand as well. And the gold star is what what is presented to that family when a, a loved one is lost. Is that correct? Well, they become a gold star. Okay. Um, the the next of kin and immediate family members do get a gold star lapel pin, and that's probably what you're familiar with. Yes. The little gold star lapel pin. Um, cousins, uncles, grandparents, um, the extended family, they don't get anything physically. 
So this was an opportunity for us to give the entire family something physical, a place, um, a monument that is, is there, just theirs, um, and a place to go where they can reflect and touch that monument, um, a place where they can, you know, go and, 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 and be with that loved one who is, yeah. who has sacrificed their life for our country. So, yeah, I think, um, Saturday, I believe number 78 was dedicated. Woody was there, uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, they dedicated number 78. Uh, he and I'll go next week and do 79 and 80 in Texas. The following week we go to Idaho and do 81. Uh, we go from Idaho to North Carolina and we do 82. So, and, and uh, by the way, these gold star monuments are in all 50 states now. They're all 50, all 50 states have at least one gold star monument. Brent, I've got to ask you this before we take another break. Is the gold star project, where does that rank for you? Because you served in the United States military yourself. Where, what does being involved in that gold star project, how does that rank for you in, in among your list of accomplishments in your life? Oh, it's, I, I mean, I believe the foundation and, and being, being a co-founder and serving as executive director for the first five years, that's, that's the top for me. I mean, to be able to serve the families, uh, to be able to serve my grandfather in a way where I could help him, uh, travel and, and be with him and get him to and from um, these monument dedications. No question. It's that's the top of the list for me. Man, that is so good because again, the, the Herschel Woody Williams foundation, again, it, Woody Williams spearheaded this gold star mon this gold star monument movement, because again, there was nothing there to honor the families of those fallen and, and, I want to say this, and we'll step aside and take a break. If you're listening today and you have served our country in the United States military, whatever branch of military you served, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, um, National Guard and Reserves, however you served our country, our thanks from the Intentional Encourager podcast, our deepest gratitude and our thank you. And it's not enough to say thank you for your service to this great country. We'll step aside, take a break. We're going to tell Brent's incredible story when we come back here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton. want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger, deeper, and more powerful connector, you've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up, Kindle if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email 
and I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of people buy from people. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Brent, I want to get into your story. And as, as we talked off the top, you, you yourself are, are a veteran of military. You, if you're watching on YouTube, Brent is wearing his Desert Storm, uh, Brent Fountain Desert Storm. Take me back as far back as you want to go from point A to where we are today and just kind of talk through your life story. Sure. Well, as a kid, I grew up in uh, Barbersville, West Virginia, um, carried, carried right newspapers. where we were recording this podcast, by the way. Out on, out on McComas Road in Barbersville, West Virginia, as we record this podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, go Mountaineers. Oh, um, boy. Oh, now you've gone and done done it now. <laughs> well, I'm a herd fan. Yeah. Since we're talking about yeah, West Virginia. Yeah, our, our state. Yeah, our state. Yeah. yeah. Well, people, ask, they'll ask me when they find out I live in West Virginia, they're like, oh, you must be a Mountaineer fan. And I'm like, you oh, got no. the wrong color. <laughs> not, <necessarily. laughs> not in this not town. Yeah, not I'm this all about being a West Virginia Mountaineer, but the right. come first. That's exactly so. right. Well, listen, <laughs> I tell people all the time, blue and gold make green. So you know you got to right. you got to go there. So I've never heard that. I have to use yeah. that. So uh, yeah, grew up in Barbersville, carried newspapers for three or four years. Uh, was a junior on the volunteer fire department. Uh, worked at the Dairy Queen there on Route 60. Um, drove the little yellow Chevettes and, uh, for Geno's and delivered pizzas for a couple of years and started school at Marshall, uh, went for a year and, uh, decided I had some growing up to do. And I felt like the military could, could help me do that. So, uh, I wanted to be a medic and I wanted to go to airborne school and I wanted the GI bill. I wanted to get, get out and go to college eventually and, and be able to pay for it. Um, so the first three recruiters didn't didn't offer any of any of the above, so they sent me to the army recruiter, um, and he said, "We'll make you a medic, and we'll put you uh, put a parachute on you, and, and send you to airborne school, and uh, you'll have the GI Bill." So in uh, September 1987, I went into the uh, United States Army, did basic training out at Fort Bliss, Texas. Um, and then went to airborne school and medic school and ended up my first duty station was the first cavalry division in Fort Hood, Texas. Um, served in uh, Fort Hood for a couple of years, ultimately ended up at the 82nd Airborne where I wanted to be all along uh, as a paratrooper. The, uh, the first cav, they, they don't jump out of airplanes in the mm -hmm. first cavalry division. So ultimately I wanted to be at the 82nd airborne. I got there in the summer of 90, uh, about the time, you know, I was supposed to get out in the summer of 90 and, um, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, uh, in August of 1990. So I, as a medic was involuntarily extended for a year. Um, to to go serve. So Brent, take me through that that time because I, I was a freshman at Marshall in August of 1990. And I remember what it was like, you know, thinking that war was coming and and, th mm -hmm. and I actually, you know, later that 
you know, a few months later, I actually had an advisor that was arrested for protesting the war. And that's when it was kind of like, you know, that's where, that's the time for me that, that South Point seemed a thousand miles away from Huntington because it was, you know, even though I drove 10 minutes to school every day, cause I grew up in Burlington over in, in the South Point area, I drove 10 minutes to Marshall. But, but when I saw my advisor getting arrested for protesting, it felt like my hometown was a thousand miles away. Cause I was in a whole different world at that point, being at Marshall, you, you are thinking, okay, I'm going to get out. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to start basically start my life. And then this happens. What was your thought process when you get that notice that, Hey, we're extending you for a year because something's coming. Um, I, I, well, obviously, I was I was fearful, you know, a, a little a little scared, intimidated, but excited at the same time. I mean, that's why you joined the army. That's why you trained. Uh, that's why we trained for three years um, for for that situation. And what a what a better opportunity than to be part of the greatest military in the world um, to help liberate and free a little country. Uh, like Kuwait, who was who was being invaded, and uh, horrific things happening to their people. Um, mm -hmm. At that point, I couldn't get there quick enough. I was, you know, like everybody else in, in the army. This is this is what we trained for. Let's go, uh, let's go liberate these people in this country and and do what we're supposed to do. Wow! And so, how long was it? You you mentioned August of nineteen ninety. You're getting ready to. You, you've been extended for a year. So now, you know, you're there till August of 91 at the very, at, at the very earliest. When did you guys get the orders to, that you were going to the desert to support the, the military operation of then president George HW Bush? I went over, um, I deployed with the 82nd airborne, our unit deployed in, in October, um, October, November, December, we trained and kind of set up, um, operations just to get ready for uh what was to come in january so desert shield then turned to desert storm in january of 91 and the uh air campaign uh launched and we started to move up closer to the to the border i was uh, as i mentioned i was a medic and i had a humvee that had a cracker box like on the back, like you'd see in an ambulance, uh, you know, typical ambulance, just a, a big box on the back of it with a big red cross on, on each side. Um, and we were wedged in between a tank, uh, a tank company. Mm -hmm. So my, my job was that company of tanks, which is about 12 to 14 tanks and the individuals in those, that was my, those were my responsibility. We, um, we didn't have much challenge, as you know. If you know anything about the, the Gulf War, we 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 went in and 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 did the job pretty quickly. Um, we were at a big advantage because we had um, night vision. They didn't have night vision. We could see them at night. They couldn't see us. We had GPS. We knew where we were on in the desert. They didn't have GPS. They, so maybe they knew, maybe they didn't. But we certainly knew where we were, and we could see them. Um, and that's the reason things moved so quickly, not only the air campaign, but, um, the ground war as well. We just had such an advantage, um, uh, so many advantages 
you know, coming in that most of them, by the time we got to them, if their tanks weren't already hit and on fire, they were, uh, they were waving anything white that they could find in the air to surrender. You talked earlier about the value of preparation. When, when you are in a military, when you, when you're in, in a military conflict, like you were in with desert storm, you, you just mentioned the United States military had night vision goggles. The enemy did not. The, the United States military had GPS. The enemy did not. All these advantages, that preparation, is that where you really first learned the value of preparation was being involved in that military operation? Well, certainly part of it. If not, if not specifically about those things, um, it was about being being prepared in in any way possible personally, both mentally and physically, with what I needed, you know, a gas mask, um, a weapon, those those sorts of things. As far as the um, the GPS and, and the night vision, honestly, I knew we had it, but I didn't know they didn't until wow. after. It was it was several years after the war before I learned learned that, but. Um, being prepared in general, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's where you. If you don't get anywhere else, you go to the military. You're gonna you're gonna learn how to be prepared. I, I gotta ask, Brent. I gotta ask one more question around that. What was what was a moment? If you don't care to share one, what is there a particular moment from from your time in, in the desert that that sticks out to you? That 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 you 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 will be like this one thing. I will never forget as long as I live. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's burnt. It's burnt in my memory. I, I can't, I can't get rid of it. Unfortunately. Um, when, when we, so we spent three or four days getting through the Republican guard and our final destination where we ended up was what they call the highway of death. Um, and if you, you know anything about the Gulf war, uh, the highway of death was the road, the highway between um, between Baghdad and Kuwait, Kuwait City. Well, that highway was, I mean, it's basically a 60-mile highway. So you imagine 60 miles between Huntington and Charleston, three lanes going one direction, just bumper to bumper to bumper, automobiles, every kind of automobile, tractor trailers, tanks, everything that they had that was on the way to Kuwait was just destroyed and burnt in place. Mm -hmm. uh, literally with the, with the drivers still in the seats, gripping the wheels. Um, and that, yeah, that's, some of them had gotten out of the vehicles and you could see they had, they had made it three or four or 10 or 15 feet, but they were already injured or on fire. So they didn't make it much further than that. Um, and they were everywhere. I mean, it's, um, yeah, something I'll never forget still. And, and this, this was, this was the Iraqis bombing those people. If, if I'm telling it correctly and I'm recounting it correctly, this was the Iraqis basically bombing those people on their way to Kuwait city. Is that correct? No, this was where we, our, our air attack was bombing the Iraqis that were trying to get into Kuwait and Kuwait City. Gotcha. Gotcha. We were we were stopping them 
literally in their in their tracks. Well, and and again, it was necessary because the enemy was so covert at that time. You didn't know if if those those trucks and things like that were actually carrying IEDs or bombs or things like that that could be used to attack the citizens of Kuwait. And so, yeah, it, I I can understand why why that would still be burned in your memory. What happened after you got out of the the military? How did your Take me through that time in your life. Oh boy, that's that that uh, that's pretty extensive. <laughs> um, the first the first year or so, I, I don't really remember much about it. Um, went through a divorce, um, and uh, just basically the best thing I could say for the first fifteen years, my body came home, but my brain didn't. Because my brain was still PTSD, which I didn't, I didn't even know what PTSD was at the time. Uh, didn't know what it stood for um, or what it was. But um, yeah, the PTSD was was uh, really bad for the first fifteen years um, for me. Like I said, I don't remember much about that first year coming home, um, and it was, I was just. Just uh, keeping my head above water, basically, um, that, that first 15 years, I didn't really want anything to do with the military, the VFW, American Legion, the VA hospital. I wouldn't have anything of that um, because I just was, my, my brain was still wired. Um, once, once you go through what PTSD does, once you go through a situation like that, um, your brain has to rewire. It's not, that's not normal. Yeah. So your brain physically rewires. Well, when you come back home and you get off the plane and you come back to McComas road uh, or Louisville, Kentucky, your brain just doesn't go rewire itself back the way it was. Uh, that's the best way I can explain it. And um, so it took me, took me about 15 years to figure that out wow. before uh, I finally got my head above water and, and figured out a, a better way. I did, went to the VA. My grandfather, as, as you mentioned, Woody, um, was an integral part in picking me up off the ground and saying, we've got to, yeah, we've got to get you some help and, and you've got to accept it. Uh, I just never would accept it. it was, there was plenty of help there, um, but I just never would accept it. You know, there's two things that strike me ironically about what you just said and about the influence of, of your grandfather, Woody Williams. One, when Woody tells his story of how he was awarded the congressional medal of honor, it was for basically eradicating the enemy. And he tells that story. So, so well, and, and again, please take a listen to that, that, that interview. You know, he talks about eradicating the enemy using his flamethrower and doing what needed to be done. And the irony is you, you were talking about not going to the VA. Of course, now the, the VA hospital that we have in this area is named the Herschel Woody Williams Veterans Administration Medical Center. And so I got to ask you this. What was the greatest thing that your grandfather did to help you? Because, again, you guys had similar situations. You saw horrific things. He saw horrific things. How was he able to really help you dial into what you were thinking and feeling? 
Well, I, I credit the VA for saving my life, but had it not been for Woody, I would have never gotten to the VA. So um, once once he came, you know, once I came from Louisville back to Huntington and started uh, spending some time with him one on one, and getting into the VA and and seeing you know the appropriate people within the VA, um, that's that's really when the when the tide turned when things started started looking up. How how I, I've got to go here for just a second. Forgive me for extending this a little bit, but I, I've, I've got to pull a little more conversation out. And, and we have had Marine Corps veterans. One one of the conversations here on the Intentional Encourager podcast you can go back and listen to is with Pasha Palanker. He actually stepped on an IED in Iraqi Freedom. All his limbs were intact, but didn't realize he had a traumatic brain injury. And again, it's very similar to what you were talking about of having PTSD, but not realizing that you had PTSD. What was that moment like for you, Brent, when you, when you basically said enough is enough, I have got to do something because I, I don't want to continue living my life this way. Because again, you were fortunate. You had someone there in your corner. There are so many veterans that deal with PTSD every day that aren't as fortunate. So many veterans end up committing suicide, taking their own life because they aren't able to cope with it and deal with it. And that was Pasha's situation. He talked about, I was getting to that point and needed to check myself into Walter Reed to get some help. Like you had to, to reach out to your grandfather and, and, and get the help from the VA. What was that? Do you remember that moment, that seminal moment when you were like, I can't do this anymore? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't have any choice. At, 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 at the end point, uh, was, I had nowhere to live. I had no job. I had no car. Um, I had nowhere else to go. I, the, the drugs and alcohol had taken me all the way to the bottom, the very bottom. And um, once... Once you don't have anywhere to live and you don't have a car to even live in uh, or a job or um, or family, you know, I, I didn't have any. That's the only place I could turn was um, and thank God I did have my family and thank God they were willing to help me um, get me back to West Virginia. Uh, once I did get to the VA, I remember the very first time I went. The doctor came in and said, you flagged 19 out of 19 on your PTSD questionnaire. And I looked at him and I said, what is PTSD? I didn't even know what it was. And he said, don't worry about that right now. You're in, a, you're in, a, you're in the place. You're in a good place. Uh, we've got all the resources here for you, and we're going to get you back on track. And from that point, about a month later, I went to a, a residential, six-week residential uh, PTSD rehabilitation program within the VA. That was a huge game changer because then I'm with 12 or 15 other guys who were going through the same thing, uh, who had been down the same road. Um, and, I'm, and now I'm realizing I'm not the only one. So uh, that was, that, that was a, a big turning point for me as well. Well, and, and here's the thing we romanticize as a society. We, we've romanticized in movies and things like that, Brent, war stories. Oh, we were just swapping war stories. And you see guys down at the VFW swapping war stories and things like that. We've kind of romanticized that. 
but you're in a room with guys who those stories are not romanticized at all. You guys are just trying to get through the next, you know, get to lunch and then get to dinner because of what you've gone through and things like that. When you talk about the power of commonality with those other guys, what was the biggest takeaway that you learned from that time? Because you just mentioned, you said, I, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't alone. And I have to think from that statement, you felt like that you were alone, you know, that, that you didn't know people around you that had gone through the same thing. What did you take away from those guys that, that you were with in that residential facility and realizing you, for, for better or worse, and, and not to, to say it this way, but you found brothers that you probably didn't know you had that had gone through the same thing you'd gone through. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that was the biggest thing was finally realizing that, uh, that I had PTSD, accepting that, accepting that many other people do too. And then they are able to, uh, to cope with it in a healthy way. I had been, I'd been coping with it, but I'd been coping with it in my own way. And all of those ways were extremely unhealthy. So I'm just lucky I lived through it. To be honest with you, there were uh, several friends who uh, were in the same gutter I was, uh, who who aren't aren't with us today. So, um, yeah, just learning about PTSD is basically an education. It's a six week education about post traumatic stress. Um, not only that you're you know, you know you're not only learning it with other with the other guys from Viet Vietnam. There were guys in there from Vietnam that were just now figuring, you know, just now getting into the, to the treatment and the education, but uh, the education about it. I mean, once you know what you have and what it is and you learn some healthy coping skills, that was, that was what I needed. Wow. Wow. That, that is so good. And listen, I, I could ask you a little bit more. I, I feel like, at this moment, Brent, as, a, as we wind up this conversation, PTSD now takes on so many forms because you have people that have been in, in domestic abuse situations that are struggling with PTSD, whether it's a, a, a husband, wife, you know, spousal domestic abuse or things like that, children that have been involved in domestic abuse and things like that, uh, business owners that have had their world just rocked by this pandemic. I mean, PTSD really is not just a, a war disease anymore. That's right. You see it in all different shapes and, and forms and, and kinds and things like that. Absolutely. Brent, if someone is out there listening today to this conversation and they're saying to themselves, I'm really struggling. I feel like I wake up every day and the weight of the world is on my shoulders because I've got a small business and people are dependent on me for their livelihood. And I don't know what the answer is, or, uh, just you, you wake up and you, you just feel like there's just so much pressure on you and, and you've seen things that you can't unsee and you've gone through horrific things in your life and you're trying to overcome, but it just keeps coming back at you. What's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement for those folks walking that road that would listen to this conversation? Don't give up. Don't give up. Even when you're completely at the bottom, and I can speak from experience, 
um, the key is just don't give up. There are so many groups out there right now um, that are willing to help. I work with them every day. Um, nonprofits, some, some guys don't like the VA. They don't want anything to do with the VA. Well, that's fine. There are plenty of other groups that um, we can get you connected to. Feel free to reach out to me personally. I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'd be, I'd be honored um, and happy to help get uh, anyone pointed in the right direction, uh, in a better direction, but uh, just don't give up. Yeah, and we would encourage you here at the Intentional Encourager podcast, if you're dealing with, with the situation and you listen to this conversation and you go, that's me, Brent was talking about me, that's my story, I feel that way. Reach out to my, reach out to me sure. at the Intentional Encourager podcast on Facebook. Um, reach out to Brent. Uh, I, I can get you connected to Brent. Sure. Um, and, and so, listen, don't fight this battle alone. And again, um, we're here to help. We're here to encourage and things like that. And that's why I felt like it was so important to have Brent on to tell his story this morning and to encourage you to to find that again, if, if you're, if you've been a victim of domestic violence and you feel those, those thoughts and those things, get, get some help, get some help and get through it. Brent, tell folks where they can connect with you. We mentioned Valor coins and pins, but you know, tell folks where they can connect with you. And, and, it, and again, if you want to totally unsolicited, Brent didn't ask me to do this, but if you have something, if you want to honor people in your company, if you want to honor a veteran in your family, you know, a legacy piece that you can give to grandchildren and things like that, that honors a member of the United States military that was in your family. I would highly encourage you to get with Brent and the folks at, at Valor Coins and Pins, V-A-L-O-R, Coins and Pins. Brent, tell people where they can connect with you as well. Yeah, we'd be honored. We'd be honored at uh, the opportunity to help. Um, just as Brian mentioned, my email is brent at valorcoinsandpins.com. Brent at valorcoinsandpins.com. You can see a lot of our work um, on Valor Coins and Pins on Facebook. Uh, I try to post all of our coins either on my personal page, uh, Brent Casey, um, or Valor Coins and Pins on Facebook. Man, that is so good. Brent, what an honor to have you a part of the Intentional Encourager podcast. And, and again, my sincere gratitude and thanks to you for your service and to all the men and women that are listening to this podcast that serve the United States of America. And we know that there are other countries that, that listen, people around the world that listen to this podcast. If you have served your country's military in any way, shape, or form, thank you for your service. Not only do we honor veterans here in our country, but you have served, those of you in other countries that have served your militaries, you keep your country free and safe as well. And so we thank you for your service. But Brent, I want to thank you for your time today, being with me on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate you, brother. Yes, sir.
My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, and anytime, any place can be an intentional encourager.